is that I don't even have to travel a, a, a quantum second away from my real nature to find my real nature. My, my real nature is absolutely and utterly always me. And it isn't later, it isn't tomorrow, it isn't if, it isn't but, it isn't because, it isn't when. It's already absolutely present now all the time. And I guess the sadhana is just remembering, remembering, remembering. Welcome to A Curious Yogi Podcast. I'm your host, Bobby, and these are my conversations with sadhaks, satsangis, and other spiritual seekers. Join us as we discuss and discover what it means to live a spiritual life and walk the yogi's path. Each week you'll gain insights into your own practice as we share the stories and wisdom of those that walk the path with us. I'm so delighted you're here. Now let's get curious. All right, welcome back. I love having these conversations. I love re-listening to them. I just keep learning new things and I love to get to share them with you. So thank you so much for being here, for continuing to listen. To those of you that have left reviews, I really appreciate it and I'm just excited to keep bringing on wonderful guests. So this week I am joined by Hallie Schwartz, a teacher's teacher from Toronto who has been deeply immersed in the world of yoga since childhood when her mother met her guru from the Himalayas. Since 1988, Hallie has been visiting India every year where she was introduced to the Hatha and restorative practices of yoga, studied Sanskrit, the various Indian scriptures such as the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita, as well as yoga history, religion, and philosophy. She has also learned the science and immersed herself in the practice of meditation, pranayama, and chanting. Hallie passionately teaches all aspects of the ancient and rich tradition in ways that are relevant and accessible and often humorous. We definitely have some laughs in this week's episode. Hallie's also the senior faculty member of the Yoga Space 200 and 300 hour teacher training programs. She teaches public private classes, leads international yoga retreats in varied exotic destinations in Europe, Asia, and India, and has authored two books. So I hope you enjoy this one. It's loaded, it's lighthearted, tons of wonderful insights from Hallie. So please, please enjoy. I think you're going to love it too. Welcome to the show, Hallie. It's a delight to have your time and energy here. I'm really excited. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's really fantastic to be here. Thank you, Bobby. Yes, I've known of you for quite a few years, but I've met yet to meet you in person. So I'm really excited to hear your story, which I know is really interesting. It's going to engage the listeners and um, just for you to share your wisdom with us from your many, many years of practice. I'm looking forward to sharing with you as well and for the listeners to hear what I'm going to be saying and what I'm going to be sharing. Great. So I know you've got a really interesting personal story of how you came to yoga and sadhana as a small child. Can we just start there and can you share your a bit of your journey with us? Absolutely. I'd be more than happy to. Um, my earliest memories from Uh, I guess it was when I was maybe four or five years old. 
and uh, we were living in Montreal in a in a little community called Hampstead. Um, and my mom would often use her home in order to bring in uh, members of a spiritual community that was really just starting to blossom um, in Montreal. Uh, and I was about four years old or five years old, and I wasn't quite in school full time yet. And so my mom would bring me along and she would have me there in a lot of the different meetings. And I remember that there was a teacher, there was a Guruji that was there that was offering teachings and lots of meditation and discussion and laughter. Um, but because I was so young and I didn't really understand the content of what was happening there, but was just really enjoying um, the incredible energy from all of the people that were there, I feel like my my introduction to spirituality was really from a place of laughter and joy and friendship more than it was like wisdom and information and so you know from my earliest childhood for me yoga and meditation and spirituality was very much about community um getting together people that enjoyed each other's company and uh, people that would just get together and uh, talk about interesting things but more often than not, just be together in, in friendship and community. And then later on, as I started to get older and, and it seemed as if my mother was really staying strongly connected with this community, I started to meet um, many more people. And as I started to get a little bit older, I started to have a, a better understanding of what a, a yoga community or a spiritual community, or sometimes you could call it an ashram, what it's all about. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that's sort of the raw beginning of my story. And it gets a lot more adventurous from there, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. Would you say that like when you were that four-year-old child or like growing up in those formative years, being a part of that satsang or spiritual community, did, was there like a curiosity or a sense of seeking within you from that young age? Like were you... Question. Yeah, that's a very good question. I would say that as a young child of four, five, six, I was just really excited to be with people. I was extremely precocious. I loved to be around people. My mother and I were very close. I felt really easy in her company and just a deep sense of natural trust. Uh, and also a lot of the people that I met in the community were so incredibly friendly and so I would say that my, my, my seeking and my curiosity probably didn't come seriously until I was about nine or 10. And then really until I was about 18 or 19. But, but something very interesting happened to me when I was about five years old in the community. I remember spending some time um, with the guru of the community, uh, Swamiji, um, and asking him, um, very distinctly, and I was so young, asking him who had more to learn, my mother or myself, and he immediately, without even thinking about it, said, your mother has way more to learn. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 such a, it's such an indelible story in my mind from when I was that age. So I don't know if I was asking just out of my kind of sense of being a precocious young person, or if that maybe was the budding of the seeker within me. Because to be a five-year-old, to really ask who has more to learn, the mother or the daughter, that seems like it's coming from a place of, of the seeds of being a seeker, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's so interesting. And like that seed perhaps was planted wherever it was planted and now it's blossomed. You know, you've been practicing for 
I don't know, more than 30 years. Sure. And, and would you say that, like, I know a lot of people that I've interviewed for this show, they've come to spirituality through really challenging times. You know, we have that um, mm. disillusionment with the world where we get questioning. And I know that's how I came to a spiritual path, but it sounds like you had this very beautiful, supportive, spacious environment in which you sort of blossomed into spirituality. Did mm. you have any of those like really deep, deep burning questions oh, yeah. or uh, dissatisfaction with the world? Amazing question. It's funny. So funny that you ask that because I would say from about age four till about six, um, everything in my life was just, you know, the life of a kind of a, a, a normal girl, I guess you could say. Um, but at, uh, at about six years old, there started to be some, some extremely challenging difficulties um, in the family when my mother and father decided that they could no longer stay together for various reasons. And so my, my journey through spirituality, even though it started as being really vibrant, really exciting, really friendly, and, and in many ways still stayed that way in, in a certain sense, um, I would say that my the growth of my spiritual life always had to share the stage with so many challenging things that were going on in my family with the breakup of the marriage of my parents. So I feel like I've always I've always walked two parallel roads, one where I had so much faith and so much interest and so much brightness when it came to um, spiritual seeking. But the other thing was also feeling um, so worried and fearful and reticent just because when you're that young and, and the family is starting to disintegrate, it can, it can be really um, scary. So, yeah, I'd love to say that my spiritual life has only been easy, but <laughs> boy, it's had so many challenges along the way for sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. And what was it like when you, I know then um, your mom ended up moving to India where she still lives and, you know, she's an incredibly inspiring woman and yeah. I'm wondering like between her and, and her guru, like how did they, those two individuals influence your sadhana or your spiritual inquiry? Wow. Well, I would say that um, it, it probably Guruji was the first influence just because it's, even when you're very young, it's so impactful to be in the presence of somebody that carries such a high voltage of energy within them. Um, and my mother in the early days of, of meeting her guru, our guru, my mother in the early days, there was a lot of struggle that was going on with, within her because more than anyone else, she had to shoulder the burden of this awakening of spirituality within herself, but also um, the sense of, of deep commitment and deep responsibility, uh, uh, being a mother of, of three children, of three girls, myself and my two sisters. So I would say that even though my mother was a huge influence on me and still is to this day, that the biggest influence was just being in the presence of somebody who contained within him something completely unexplainable, but that I would really come to understand later in life. And I would say that starting from about 18 or 19 years old, my mother has been um, a parallel spiritual influence in my life, as well as my um, uh, our Guruji. 
And, and the influence that my mother has had on me is that my mother's personality is that even though she's deeply spiritual, she has such a marvelously vibrant human side that I really learned from her so perfectly growing up that spirituality and humanity are not two different things. Because if oneness means what it means, it means I can't separate um, spirituality and humanity. So I guess in that sense, um, that's something that my mother has um, continued to teach me since I was uh, you know, in my teenage years. Wow, that's so beautiful. That's such a nice way of um, understanding or expressing that we are both that the oneness is not divided like we are human and divine and and what a kind of revelation because in this in this world that we live in is this kind of concept that a spiritual person or seeker is kind of this recluse out of society or whatever but here we are like moving our way through life um, with all the complications of being a human and the suffering and the confusion and the whole thing. But at the same time, like that oneness shines through the whole experience. That's- Always. And, and even the many years that I spent visiting um, the community in the Northwestern Himalayas, I noticed that there might've been a misconception from people in this neck of the woods that it was a reclusive existence, but it is anything but a reclusive existence. In fact, it's, it's so alive. It's so participating in this, in this incredible and mysterious drama of life. And, and, and I feel like my, my spiritual education was so important to me because all of the examples that I had with all of the fantastic members of the community, each of them had their own special way of being a, a human being full of personality in this complex world, as you say, but at the same time, never letting go of that, of that conviction of the underlying reality. That's the basis of it all. Yeah, beautiful. That actually reminds me of something I heard Swamiji say once that um, you won't become self-realized and become me. You'll be self-realized as you, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) which I which I love that. And that that brings me to my next question. I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to the path of your son. I know you spent time every single year for 30 years going to and from India developing your own understanding your own mastery of Sanskrit the scriptures the chanting like what was that like um, coming out of you know 18 years old and did you decide this is what I want to devote my life to to studying and teaching Mm -hmm. yoga or how did that journey unfold fascinating question with a really long and complex answer so I'll try not to be, <laughs> I'll try not to be too lengthy about it but um, I guess at 18 years old there were two me's you know I was in theater school or just about to be in theater school studying to be a professional and trained theater actor um, and at the same time my mom had been gone um, in India for several years and so there was part of me that that was drawn towards towards understanding what that spiritual life was like from the from the experience of being there but then there was also the me that was really excited about being an actor and going to university and meeting people and so there was almost like one me but two me's in a way uh and so i was torn a little bit in those first few years And I think part of the reason that I went to India for the first time to spend some time with my mom is because 
Um, I felt drawn there, but more than anything else, I felt that it was my my dharm, my my duty as a daughter, in order to really meet my mother in that place, rather than her coming in every couple of years to Montreal, which she was doing. And so I felt called to visit her there and meet her there. And I also felt a sense of duty to do that. But at the same time, it was it was trying to share the space with all of these these ambitions and these desires that I had as an 18 and 19 year old person. So finally, when I did go, it was a mixture of being exceptionally excited and totally terrified. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's really like what I'm hearing you say, like how you had that duty towards your mother and to just, allow her to be in that space and go explore her kind of world in that way it's it sounds like you were such a mature 18 year old because a lot of um 18 year olds might rebel against such a strong conviction that their mother has to embrace a spiritual life move to india while you're still a young person like that's pretty powerful that you had that awareness at such a young age Wow, that's a really amazing point that you bring up. Oh my gosh, I guess I could guess at why that is. I've always been, uh, I've always been a little bit of a of a person pleaser. Like I just want everybody around me to feel good and to feel happy and to feel at ease. And I feel like when I was young, it was even stronger in me. So I really had that need to to um, also make my father feel comfortable and good, and also make my you know my mother feel you know included in my life. And and so I think there was a, a, that definitely was a part of it of really just trying to please everybody that it was in my that was in my world. But I think another part of it is that when you meet a realized being when you're young, before your intellect knows what a realized being is, it impacts you weirdly on a cellular level, on a on a way that can't be described with your mind and intellect, because at four years old, it's not really fully formed at that point. So I think the draw was also because there were some subtle seeds that were planted in me when I was so young that kind of just flowered seems to have flowered in my my ending up um, spending, you know, so much of my time in India. Mm-hmm. So what was that like for you, like over the years, like in your own deepening of awareness and the understanding, like I loved before when you spoke about the, the high voltage of Guruji's energy, which I can also attest to that high voltage. But as you started to discover sadhana and this beautiful philosophy that lies in the yogic scriptures and that's present in daily satsang and all that what started to unfold for you through the years I would say that when I was still in my teenage years my late teenage years it was a mixture of being totally fascinated but also being proud the first I would say decade of my spiritual life there was a little bit of spiritual pride there in a sense I felt like this spiritual education that I was given was like a feather in my cap as I said before I was in theater school and I was meeting all kinds of fascinating and interesting people that came from all different backgrounds and I felt like what I had to bring to the table was you know all of those many months that I was continuously you know again and again spending in India so in a sense I did use it as a calling card you know in that in those first few years Um, so it was a mixture of a little bit of ego I was proud that I was a spiritual person 
But at the same time, I was deeply, deeply impressed with what I was learning and so excited by what I was learning. Um, And then I would say sometime in my 30s, some of that spiritual pride that I had in my 20s started to fall away. And I, I realized that spirituality is not a it's not a subject matter. It's not a uh, it's not a university degree thing that you study. It's actually the study of your very own being, your your own mind. And so I guess in a sense, you could say I started as the years went by, I started to take it more and more seriously and it became less of a something I did. Um, and it was just more of self-exploration. Mm-hmm. Wow. Beautiful. And, and so I'm wondering, like, were you attracted because now you, you teach such a, a broad spectrum of tools that a yoga practitioner, or a yoga teacher can yeah. use, like the, you know, not only the asana, but all the other things that often get missed in a Western yoga world. What were you drawn to first? Like, were you always practicing asana meditation or was it the scriptures that called you or the singing? Yeah. Oh, that's such a layered question. I would say that asana was the last um, thing that I really came to. Um, I remember taking lots of yoga classes um, with uh, Vidyatma and uh, Mohani, um, who were two of the great Hatha yoga teachers um, in the community in those days and continuing up until very, very recently. Um, But I would say asana was not the was not something that made me jump up and down with excitement. I thought it was great. Don't get me wrong, but it didn't, it didn't like radiate out of my heart or anything. But I remember um, in those, in that first um, time that I spent the months, I remember studying Hindi and Sanskrit with Kalyani uh, and also um, the first scripture that I picked up was the Bhagavad Gita. And it was chapter five, I remember, of the Bhagavad Gita that was talking about karma yoga and how the true definition of karma yoga is to engage deeply in all of the actions while remaining um, uh, in that space of knowing the underlying changeless reality, even in the midst of doing everything you know you need to do. And so I would say that that was the most inspiring thing to me at that point, where all of the different yoga practices that were talked about in the Bhagavad Gita, because for me, that was truly what it meant to bring spirituality into your life. And then asana, I just kind of felt it was a fun thing to do, like a a support of the spirituality rather than the spirituality being the support of the asana. Yeah. Mm, Nice. That's such a beautiful, not even reframe, because that's kind of the original frame. Right. Probably for some people listening, it might be a reframe, but um, that's also so beautiful that like chapter five has obviously like resonated with you and you've held on to that as, and um, it it also, it inspires me because when I came onto the spiritual path, something like in my mind, I was always trying to reconcile, like, I want to be in India, I want to be in the ashram, but I need to be here in the world and I need to earn money. And I, and I, there was this kind of separation that it was either this or that. Mm-hmm. And I love just the way you're expressing about everything that it's not this or that, it's this and that. Ooh, that's good. That's a nice reframe right there. This, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And um so the scriptures and, and Hindi and Sanskrit obviously have made an impression on your teachings. Yeah. And, 
And I've heard you sing quite a few times in kirtans and, and online. And just, I love the little um, prayers you have all over your website. They're so beautiful. Yeah, so you. how has, has the chanting, the singing, like really embracing the vibrations of Sanskrit impacted mm -hmm. your personal sadhana? Nice. Um, as I wrote in my second book, Yoga and I, there's this section that's called mantra that talks about mantra and the power of mantra. And I, I really... I really take a moment there in that essay to be honest about my relationship with uh, chanting. My relationship with chanting um, didn't happen until I was about 28 or 29 years old. Um, I felt I kind of resisted it for a very long time. Uh, and I guess I resisted it because I, I uh, even though I, I, I could get it from, from an outsider looking in, I couldn't get it yet from, from, from an insider channeling it outward. And so it, it took longer than any of the other yogas to really settle within me. I found even meditation came easier to me than chanting. And then who knows what it was? Something must have happened. And I think it was, it's possible that it could be that in every satsang that we ever had um, in the, at the ashram, we always sang those famous seven Gita verses from chapter two of Bhagavad Gita, uh, as well as finishing satsang with the mantra from several Upanishads, the, uh, the mantra of the whole, the Om Purnam mantra. And, and as, as I realized that, that Guruji would never finish a satsang without chanting. And then he would leave satsang and he would always say, take care of each other. I remember that so fully that for me, I made this switch that chanting is actually for community to come together and take care of each other. So it wasn't necessarily important what I personally thought about chanting. Chanting was a way for community to come together and take care of each other. And so from that moment onward, things started to slowly shift and I realized that 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 chanting was just, you know, an expression of knowledge, but also an expression of of gladness and of celebration, you know, when communities come together in certain circumstances. And so now today, chanting is everything to me. Uh, I love it almost more than anything. It softens my heart. It opens my mind. And um, it also takes away my cynicism. And um, maybe that's the thing I love the most of it is that it softens my cynicism. Wow. That's probably like the most beautiful ex ex explanation of mantra I've ever heard. Thank you for yeah. that. Yeah. And it's, it is interesting. And I've also sung those verses so many times and those prayers, which I love, but I don't, I also, you're making me kind of, reflect on my own understanding or like deep experience of like what they really mean yeah yeah that's really that's really powerful yeah. and, and the lovely thing about mantras is there's just thousands and thousands of them like you could just never get bored there's so much it's just a it's like jewels everywhere you turn and everywhere you look yeah mm -hmm. yeah that is really really powerful um, and just even learning those Sanskrit words and not even the direct transliteral um, translation, but like how the language itself is so high vibrational. Yeah, that's very true. Sometimes when I'm teaching chanting, we don't do the art, the meaning, the meaning. We do only the shabd, the sound. 
Um, because otherwise, if we have the meaning too quickly, the intellect wants to grab it right away and wants to start making a mountain out of it and think it understands. And then when it comes time to, to encanting the shabd, the shabd sometimes loses some of its, 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 its capacity to expand because the intellect interrupts it. So I think that's a really good point that you bring up is uh, just the, the power of the sound itself and not necessarily only what it means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I want can we sh- I want to shift a little bit to to your own personal practice. Like, what does your daily sadhana look like now after thirty plus years of being Im- immersed in this world of of meditation, yoga, satsang, scripture? Like, it's a, a lot. Like, one can't practice every pillar or principle every day like how do you express your sadhana or what does it mean to you right now that's a, also a very layered question uh i i think for me sadhana um previously sadhana was a to-do list absolutely it was a to-do list uh, and so i was very organized about my to, uh, to-do list I had asan that was in there. I had pranayam that was in there. I had chanting in there and meditation and I had scripture study. And, and I guess I was a good, I guess I was a good student for gosh, at least 20 years, a really, really good student. And now I would say um, that my sadhana now is not as much a things that I must do anymore, but sadhana is just the eyes that I look out at the world with which means that everywhere I look is an opportunity for me to apply what I feel is real um, to every circumstance that I am. And so in that sense, in that sense, sadhana never begins and never ends. And the sadhana that begins and ends is absolutely daily meditation. I would uh, never skip a day of meditation. I absolutely have a regular asana and pranayam practice. Uh, And even though those practices have a beginning, middle and an end that might last like 65 minutes, as soon as I get up off the proverbial yoga mat or the, you know, meditation cushion, that's where I put on the sadhana glasses and try to see (laughs) through them for the rest of the day. Oh, that's so beautiful. Instead of the rose colored glasses, you've got the sadhana colored glasses. Exactly. Sadhana glasses yeah. where everything that's that's coming back to me is 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 being reflected through the vision, through the eyes of just that space of knowledge. I mean, that for me is the real sadhana. Yeah, beautiful. That's really, I guess, what living yoga off the mat means is yeah. how everything becomes the sadhana. And that's just where we the space that we live in and I was kind of laughing when you're speaking because I'm like oh my gosh you're you 20 years ago sounds like me right now I'm like <laughs> I gotta tick off my boxes I got my scripture I got every single day and, Absolutely. Then if I, and, and if don't I, stop doing that it's the best education of all <laughs> is. yeah and if, I, if I don't do it one day I get like a little bit of an eye twitch I'm like oh no <laughs> But I know it's not about that. And and it, it it's inspiring for me to have these conversations because, you know, as someone that is aspiring to live in that way, to always have the sadhana glasses on, it's so important that we yeah. have these conversations with those that have walked the path before us. I know we're on the path together, but, you know, you're a few steps ahead. I have a few years on you, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
So, you know, I feel like Sadna, if we're, if we're just going to keep the, the image of the glasses going, I think Sadna is polishing the glasses. I mean, that's one way of looking at it. It's just the glasses get, you know, soiled and I polish them and then they get soiled again and I polish them again and then they get foggy and I polish them again. And uh, yeah, so that's the Sadna. I would never give up the to-do list. Uh, it's just that when the to-do list is over, then the work begins, as you know. You know? mm-hmm. Would yeah. you say that over the years, there's been a refinement where those moments of being affected or getting attached, getting stuck in the rag and dwesh, like, it, it, is it getting a little more expanded, like the times, yeah. the struggle is less between the times yeah. of the polishing, if you know what I mean? I totally know what you mean. Um, and this is where I really, I really remember the advice of my, my mom throughout the years, is that, um, uh, what was I going to say? Ah, uh, yes. It's that I've reached the point where I've stopped, I've stopped excluding experiences from the sadhana. So, which means when rag, that intense wanting and desire comes up and dwesh, that kind of that intense aversion and recoiling comes up. I, I really don't, it's not impressive to me anymore, rag and dwesh. And so I don't need to worry about it or get upset about it. It just doesn't impress me very much anymore. And so I, I don't need to accept and reject anymore. Uh, and so I would say that even when the really challenging times come up in my life, which they daily do, I can't stress that enough, they daily do. I don't, I feel like my graha, my grab, my grasping it has become so much less that I just don't take it on so much anymore. It's there, it comes up for me, but I just don't take it on. And in that way, I don't, I, I don't think of my sadhana anymore as how I deal with challenges. It's more of when the challenges come up, I, I maintain the space. So just maintain that space of awareness in each and every moment. And that for sure has gotten easier for me as the years go by, definitely. Mm, yeah well would you say that like maintaining that awareness is where the sadhak or the spiritual practitioner like is that where we should keep our main attention like there's so many um mm. pulls for us even of just interest like I know for me like I love pranayam I love asana I love scripture I love learning Hindi and Sanskrit like I love it all and sometimes it's like you just want it all like where would you say, like, for you, for your teachings, for your life, have you really put your priority on amongst all the other wonderful, also fulfilling um, principles or practices? Wow. I would say that in my teaching life, in my life as a teacher, I guess you could say it's a triangle. It's, it's made up of three different, it's an equilateral triangle. It's made up of three equal angles. And one of the angles is teaching others how to be embodied, to be comfortable in their bodies, to to really to tune in and really listen to the truth teller that is the body. The body is a very um, quick truth teller. It doesn't have a lot of lie or deception in it. And this is why I love to teach asana to people, because it really helps people to decipher what are those truthful moments of sensation that arise in the body. So asana is really helpful for that. So that's one aspect of the triangle. The other aspect of the triangle are all of the 
the subtler practices, the, the pranayam practices, um, the meditation practices, the, the dealing with the mind, the, the, the learning how to be in the mind with the mind in the same way that asan helps us to be with the body. So there's that part of the triangle. And the other aspect of the triangle is the gyan, is the very specific textual and scriptural knowledge that yoga philosophy and, and yoga history teaches us. And so I feel like I always make a, a, a prioritization of those three aspects of my teaching life. And I really try not to let one supersede the other. Mm. Wow. I'm t- I totally jotted that down. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to steal your, tri- your, your well, triangle. Please do. <laughs> please do. Yeah. That's really great. So by now you've, you've taught probably thousands of students and maybe even thousands of teachers to become teachers and shared your um, broad view and lens on not only yoga as you learned it and studied it in India, but yoga as you live, you live in Toronto in an urban city and you teach a lot of people that are coming to yoga. Like how do you see yoga being shaped in today's modern environment, given its long history? Yeah, it's interesting. I was looking at this uh, at this you know, just some random post on Instagram the other day, and and it was like a picture of what we think the spiritual path is, and then it's like a a, a straight line with an arrow going in a particular direction, and then the next part of it says what it really is, and it's like waves and squiggles and and collision and disorganization, and but somehow all of it having a sacred geometry making sense about it. I feel very much like that's what what's happening in modern yoga right now is that there's there's a lot of waves there's a lot of squiggles there's a lot of sacred geometry there a lot of patterns a lot of designs and it's not it doesn't feel anymore to me like this is what we're doing with yoga in modernism it feels like so many different minds and hearts and 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 micro communities that are all you know trying to explore what truth means to them and so you know, I, I find these days I'm feeling a lot more hopeful. I used to feel very not hopeful. I feel much more hopeful about where yoga is going now. I, I, I see people are meditating more. They're not just talking about meditation, but actually meditating. I'm seeing um, people that are, that, are, that are having conversations about what it means to apply sadhana to daily life. Uh, and I find that even though we love asan to the point that we do, I'm really hearing conversations about asan as being a pathway towards an unfoldment. So, you know, even though I think we've gone through some some pretty intense times in modernism with yoga, I'm really seeing glimmers of hope that we're going in a in a in a cool direction. How about that? A cool direction. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I love that. That it's that you're reflecting on the positive elements and focusing the attention, the awareness on all the wonderful things that are happening, which is that people are drawn to dig deeper. And in this world that's so divided, so individualistic, so radicalized, it's so amazing that yoga is as prevalent as it is, that it could perhaps, like you said, be the the pathway towards relieving some of that separation and suffering that's kind of everywhere as soon as we open our eyes 
Yeah. And you know, it's so funny you say that because I was just thinking the other day that, that yoga is, is, and so it, it, it's actually not changing. Even when we think it's changing, it's always is, mm-hmm. uh, it's always, it, it, it's always what it is. It's, it's like the clay that you mold into all kinds of different ornaments and pots and vases and things like that, which is something that uh, we talk about a lot when we, we study scripture is that we use the image of the clay and everything that can be made it out of, out of the clay. And I feel like yoga is that clay and, and no matter what we make out of it, it's not going to stop being clay just because I make something out of it that doesn't look anymore like clay. And when I, when I had that revelation a few years ago, I realized I don't have to be so upset about all the different vases and plates and cups that are on the shelf, because I just know that their source is unchanging. That yoga space, that yoga state is just the unchanging being. And so I feel a little bit more positive about it than I ever have. Mm, that's such a good analogy to remember from the scriptures. It also reminds me of the ocean and the wave analogy. And I love that you're for like another reframe for me wow the state of yoga is that vast ocean and the waves which come up in my own sadhana or in the world as it seems but it to remember that it's all that same ocean and that's really the definition of yoga right there isn't it Mm -hmm, beautiful well that leads me to my next question i know you recently um published your second book, Yoga and I, which you you mentioned a little bit earlier, but I'm wondering if you can share about that book, what it's about, and what inspired you to start putting your your essays, your writings into publication? Well, the first book that I wrote, um, One Without a Second, which is a direct quote um, from the Chandogya Upanishad, One Without a Second, and that's how I entitled my book, um, it was something that that Gurji used to say to us all the time, one without a second. And I, I, I feel like I started to understand it um, later on in my yoga sadhana life, which is, as you point out, all of the waves are just that one water. The, the waves aren't some seconds, uh, second substance that's separate from the water. Uh, and that book was more about um, was more of like a yoga teacher training manual because I was teaching yoga philosophy in so many different teacher training programs here in Toronto and worldwide. Uh, so I wrote a just a manual. It was like an overview of yoga philosophy, you know, based on how I understood it. Uh, and the second book was a little bit different. The second book was taking elements or aspects of yoga philosophy and personalizing a little bit. Um, just you know, talking about how how I feel it coming up in my life, but also how I feel it coming up just from the perspective of being human, what it's like to be human. And so the second book is uh, a little bit more of a personal relationship um, to yoga rather than, you know, a manual for teachers. And so the new book is a bit more whimsical. There's some things that are very detailed about it, but I feel it's like it's a little bit conversational, a little bit whimsical, you know, a bit funny. And uh, yeah, it was uh, it was really a labor of love to write it for sure. It was. Mm-hmm. Did, did you write it like during the pandemic days when you were really <laughs> contemplative and at home yeah. and 
inspired to express? Absolutely. The whole book was written. You actually forgot that the whole book was written um, during the pandemic. And uh, I decided I was going to write a thousand words a day until it was finished. And I stuck to it. I wrote a thousand words a day, no matter what. And uh, the book is about, I don't know, maybe 110,000 words or something like that. So I think I wrote it in a few months. And uh, my really dear, dear friend and web designer and book designer, Rami Shandal, she um, collaborated with me and, and did the book design of it. And so surely I didn't do it um, on my own. I, I definitely had some help. Mm. And uh, yeah, I'm very proud of it. Really wow. Exciting. Would would you say that like writing the book and your expression in the essays is kind of also a part of sadhana, like a part of you expressing your spiritual understanding? That's a good question. Yeah. Um, there's 25 essays in the book and they touch upon just different aspects of sadhana, spirituality and living. Really, it's all about being alive. And I feel like the writing of it really helped me to reconcile some of the some of the prior conflicts I might have had between between so-called separate yoga philosophy understanding and then so-called separate world. And so, yeah, I feel like it was an exercise of reconciliation in a lot of ways. It, it reconciled some things for me. It, it brought it brought out my humor again with it. It brought out my it brought out my my love of sharing it. So, yeah, I guess you could say it was a real healing experience during the pandemic to write the book yeah if like if is there can you recall just off the top of your head any one specific essay that pops that that really oh, sticks yeah. out to you that where you touch on that reconciliation the first one and the last one the very first essay is called planet of the waves and the very last essay is called between two doors and the first essay, Planet of the Waves, talks about what it's like to just live in this context of waves everywhere, waves everywhere, ocean waves everywhere, all seemingly different. And learning, you know, learning how to to rediscover the water that's the very source of all of those waves. And the second essay or the final essay um, called Between Two Doors, the 25th essay, um, talks about my talks about my journey as a person who used to think that I had to choose between humanity and spirituality and, and the pain that it caused me when I, when I thought that. Uh, and then, so there's, a, there's a, a, a character in that story, if you will, that, that is going through the pain and trauma of trying to you know, reconcile two supposedly different things. And then, of course, I won't give away the end, but I'll give away the end, <laughs> where ultimately the two merge into one and then the one just completely disappears because one is still a number and one is just the absolute whole. That was something my Guruji taught me that one is still a number. And when one is dissolved in the absolute, then that's the, that's the, that's the yoga. That's the reconciliation. So yeah, there was a bit of a healing journey in those first, uh, the first essay and the final essay of the book, the bookends of the book. Yeah. Wow. Well, it sounds pretty relevant. I know to me, yeah. I'm like, okay, I got to get your book. Holly. <laughs> like that, that's like, literally what I'm constantly going through the com the the conflict if you will or the dialogue in my head as yeah. as someone who I mean maybe I shouldn't identify but really um feels at home as a spiritual person but I'm always like oh but 
but what about this? But what about this? So I think I could learn a lot from that and probably a lot of other yoga teachers or practitioners as well. So I'll definitely put the links for the books in the show oh, notes. That's awesome. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. So you're writing books, you're teaching in Toronto, you're teaching online. I know you've been traveling to the UK to teach, like you're going all over the place. How do you balance being a teacher who travels the world while staying honed in on your own sadhana? Yeah. Well, I, I, I guess you kind of, you, you get better as you get older at, at finding pockets of time for sadhana. Um, I remember one of the great lessons Guruji taught me was that if, if meditation is three minutes, then that's the meditation. That if you're waiting for this elusive 45 minute or hour, two hour meditation, then look at all the time you're wasting, not meditating. And so you really find these, these quiet moments, just these moments to just come back to center, to come back to breath, to come back to softness, to come back to stillness. And you realize that if that, if that yoga space is everywhere, then all you have to do is pause for a few moments to allow it to show up again. And so, yeah, I've really, I've really become much better at um, carving out just, you know, elixir kind of moments for sadhana, rather than trying to look for the, you know, the big long sadhanas. And so I guess that's where the balance is. Yeah, it's really seeing, seeing the sadhana opportunities, you know, whenever I can, wherever I can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I loved how you said, keep coming back, just keep coming back. And that's something I kind of try to remind myself, like, just keep coming back, like to that space of, of yoga, like you're saying, it's just that space of home and contentment that yeah. like, we can always dip yeah. in, it's always there, it's never not there. So it, it's, it is a good reminder, like, for the listeners and for me, like, it, you know, and I love that Swamiji would say that too, like, just it's three minutes is better than no minutes. And Absolutely. we should always feel free to dip in and dip out when responsibility calls as well. When you're when you're thirsty, and you need to drink a glass of water, you don't expect to drink six gallons of water, you take one glass of water, it takes, you know, a minute to drink it, and there you're quenched. And I feel like the sadhana is like that as well. It's just that glass of water when you're thirsty. I don't need to drink the whole river. I can just drink one glass and, and, and I'm quenched. Mm, beautiful. And then when we think of those glasses of water building up over a lifetime, like uh, all, <laughs> all those dips, like all those dips. I, think, I guess that's the, the journey of living this spiritual life and like the how sadhana builds on itself it's not like something we tick off on a box like check mark oh I've done my sadhana I'm gonna be self-realized as if it's those little <laughs> dips that yeah. hopefully keep adding yeah, up and like absolutely right absolutely right yeah. yeah so I'm wondering what's what's next for you like sadhana in your sadhana and your work or your life wh where are you putting your attention on on for next well, um, it's now November 22nd, January 1st. I go, um, I meet my mom um, in India and we're going to spend some time together and that will be really lovely. And then she's going to come back here for a few months and, and visit her other um, children, her two daughters, my sisters. And so I'm really focused on um, what that's like, you know, spending time with my mom is such a fascinating and interesting thing to do. And so that's kind of the next layer of my life. 
And then I have uh, a really lovely sadhana a retreat that I'm leading in Greece in the summer, which I'm really excited about with one of my dear students and colleagues. Uh, and, uh, and also a, a big India retreat that's already full happening, you know, next year. And more teaching in the UK, which I'm also very excited about. The community of people in Leeds in the UK are just such true blue seekers. Uh, and, uh, and then I have some fiction that, I, that I'm really thinking about writing, maybe some novellas, short stories and poetry about really what it's like to be deeply human, but also, also from the perspective of, of the application of truth of knowledge, wisdom, and truth. So I think a little bit of fiction might be coming my way in my near future. Yeah. Wow. So that sounds like a full life. Cool. To me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but beautiful, beautiful. So, um, and where can let's, I'll, uh, I'll put the website in and the links for everything in the, um, mm-hmm. in the show notes so people can connect with you online or sign up for your newsletter list or your ongoing classes yeah. as well. The best thing is the website, yogahalley.com. And I guess, you know, good old fashioned Instagram, you know, follow on Instagram. All my, my whole life is sort of like, oh, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. And I find social media, if you don't take it too seriously, it really is a lovely way to connect with people. And so, yeah, I use it for that. Great. So I always like to finish each episode by winding up and asking you to leave the listeners with any final words of wisdom that they can take away from the conversation? Wow. I think the words of wisdom that I would take away from this conversation for me, not just for the listeners, but something I want to remind myself is that I don't even have to travel a a, a quantum second away from my real nature to find my real nature. My, My real nature is absolutely and utterly always me. And it isn't later, it isn't tomorrow, it isn't if, it isn't but, it isn't because, it isn't when. It's already absolutely present now all the time. And I guess the sadhana is just remembering, remembering, remembering. So uh, yeah, maybe just remember that it isn't tomorrow, it's right now. Uh, And uh, that way we realize how immediate the truth is, how immediate um, realness is, and uh, it's not a destination. Oh, thank you. That's, I kind of, that felt really um, comforting to hear that, you know, I think I always am just speaking from my own self, but maybe perhaps someone could relate to me that there's this longing to be as if farther away down the path than where I am, but actually just the way you express that. I mean, I also thought of the name of your first book, One Without a Second, like here it is right here, right now. And just to be 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 there and to remember right now is that's the hardest thing of all don't you think yes that's that's really advanced spirituality to use a a silly term advanced spirituality is to know it's not far it's it's never far away it's never anywhere but but right here right now always that's that's the that's like cracking the code you know You've got the infinite treasure in the safe and you've put your ear to the dial and you're turning the dial and you're waiting to hear that little click. For me, that's what it is to crack the code to the safe of the, of, of the most infinite riches of all, which is knowing who you are in truth. 
Wow, you've got so many awesome analogies. I love it. I'm excited. Analogies. They're so fun. <laughs> oh yeah, they're so good. You've 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 got so many good ones like that you've taken from like maybe I don't know if you have, but the inspiration from the scriptures and kind of modernized them and yeah, right. made them relatable. So I love it all. I'm I'm really just so honored to have you energy and your time on the show. I know you are so busy. So Thank you for being here. And um, my pleasure, absolute pleasure. You're my sister in the space. So it's just great to meet you and talk with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of A Curious Yogi Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please leave a review on iTunes. It really, really helps the show reach more people. Or share on social. And of course, follow on your favorite podcast platforms so you don't miss an episode. I appreciate the love and I appreciate you. Let's stay curious, connected, and keep walking the yogi's path together. In oneness and delight, this is Bobby signing off until next time.